0: me if you would, to the book of 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel chapter 17, 1st Samuel chapter 17. We're preaching on the life of David. We have, as I re- remind you, from the book of Hebrews, we're told that David and men like him are men of faith, and we're told in the scripture, whose faith follow? And we want to follow the life of David so that we can follow the faith of David, who for us is a forerunner and an example of one who lived by faith. Which does not mean there are not failures along the way, but overall it is a life of faith. 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah and encamped between Sukkah and Ezekiah in Ephesadam. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man from yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. May the Lord add His blessings to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Giants in the land. You know, you and I have giants in the land. And think of it in your life. What are the giants in your land? What are those obstacles that stand between you and your future? In this particular scene, we have two hills And we have two settings here. The Philistines on one hill and the Israelites on the other hill. We too are in between, if you will, going from one hill to the other hill. We have a journey to take. And oftentimes along life's journey, there are things that occur in our lives that cause us to pause and hesitate. Someone said that faith is largely inactive when it is not tested. That is a really loaded statement. Let me repeat that. Faith is largely inactive when it is not tested. Can you amen that? Do you know what I mean when I say that? Here's an example where faith is being tested. When you have a giant in your life of crisis that you have to face, now, Faith is put to the test. It's easy to let faith run its course and it goes along smoothly. There's no trials. There's no temptation. There's no frustrations. There's no difficulties. But when the knock of difficulty comes on our door, then our faith is really put on the spot. Is it active? Still inactive. Faith can lie dormant under certain conditions. By faith I mean it's not as if we're ever without faith before God. The just shall live by faith. Our standing is based on faith. But what we're talking about here is activating faith. Faith that can meet trials. Faith that can endure when the times are tough. And when things when the world would collapse and fail, when the world would have to go to the artificial stimulants that the world provides to give them that boost and enable them to get over their humps. But with a Christian, we have something that we can lean on. We have a sure high priest at the right hand of God who ever lives to make intercession for us. We have the eyes like Stephen that we should be able to look into heaven and see the man that it's. That, that's at God's right hand, who's living and interceding for us. But we will have, in our journey, we will have Philistines that's gonna cross our path. In the book of Samuel, the, the name Philistines appears 100 times. They're very prominent in the book of Samuel. I have to draw your attention to The book of Numbers, you don't have to turn to it, but I think this sets the stage for what we're reading about this morning. And I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. And it reads like this, So they spread this bad report, that is, the spies that had gone into the land. Twelve of them had gone in to check out what the land was like before they were going to arrive there. So they could make a determination... Maybe a strategy, how they will go about it. What kind of difficulties they would have. Where the battles would be fought, etc. And this is a report that came back. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. And what did they say? Quote, the land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw there were what? Huge. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak. Next to him, we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. Who brought this report back? Five, six of the reporters came back saying, "Uh Uh-uh. This is off-limits. This is a danger zone. We see the signs in advance. We can't go through. We're not going to be able to make it. Five, six, ten out of the twelve said, uh-uh. We can't move. We're like grasshoppers compared to them. They're giants in the land. The, the giants of the Anakins. And it just so happens, as we read in Joshua 11, verse 21 and 2, during this period, now this is the period when Israel is in the land, notice what it says, Joshua destroyed all the descendants of Anak, who lived in the hill country of Hebron, Debir, Anab, and the entire hill country of Judah and Israel. He killed them all and completely destroyed their towns. None of the descendants of Anak were left in all the land of Israel. Though, underscore this: though some still remained in Gaza or Gaza, some still remained in Gaza. And who is it that is before David? One who was from Gaza, one who was an Anakim descendant, one who was classified as a giant. In the land. How are we going to face these giants? And here one shows up on the battlefield. What does Israel do under these conditions? If you look at the last verse that we read, uh, verse 10 rather, of 1 Samuel 17, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And notice verse 11, And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Franklin D. Roosevelt, in his inaugural address in 1933, said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear is a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing for a believer to have to have fear. The book of Proverbs says that fear is the downfall of man. Think of the things that you fear in your life. You fear dying. You fear having bad health. You fear maybe where you're going to go after you die. You may fear for your family members. You may fear for the future whatever it is we're surrounded with all sorts of fears but Jesus in the new testament tells us to fear ye not but israel collectively they were trembling and they were fearful if you look back you don't have to turn to this either but if you go back to the uh, in first samuel chapter 13 again when the israel gathered themselves to fight against Israel. It says this in verse 5 of chapter 13. And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which, was, which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and pitched in Micmash eastward from Beth Haven. Verse 6. And when the men of Israel saw that they were... In a strait, or when they were in this situation, for the people, this is what their reaction was for the people were distressed. Then the people did hide themselves in caves, and in thickets, and in rocks, and in high places, and in pits. That was the reaction when the Philistines showed up with all this host of an army to go to battle against the Israelites. So here again, the Philistines are on the battlefield and Israel now has to confront them. Goliath steps up to the plate. I'm wondering if he's recalling in their history about one of the giants of Israel who slew multitudes of people by himself in whom I'm thinking of. Samson. Samson, who did he slay? many Philistines. Not only did he slay them, but he was deceived by them as well. It was a Philistine woman, by the way, that happened to catch the eye of Samson and he said to his parents, I want that woman to be my wife. The parents were daunted by such a request for an Israelite and one like himself who had gone down to the vineyards of Timnath, and of course he was a a, a Nazarite himself, and yet he's in a vineyard. What does vineyards produce? Grapes that produce wine that a Nazarite was forbidden to partake of. He saw the Philistine woman, and maybe where they get that slang word, calling girls sometimes a Philly. Now that might be before your times, but it wasn't in my times. Mike and Elena are laughing. They know what I'm talking about. Oh, she's a nice filly. Well, that filly comes from the Bible. That's short for Philistine. Yes, Samson's eye was taken by a pretty filly that got him into a big mess for the rest of his life. Well, anyway, Samson has been in memory of the Philistine. And Goliath wonders if maybe there's a Samson in their midst, who's willing to accept the challenge. And you know what the wording of the challenge is. The one that wins, the other army, the other people would be servants to them and vice versa. Challenges. Now, getting into the text here, we had mentioned last week about, or the last time I spoke on David, was that the Spirit is removed from Saul and David is anointed with the Spirit. We said that David is a type of Jesus. Jesus receives the Spirit, and you could say the Spirit departs from Israel, and it comes upon Jesus. He is the true servant of Yahweh. He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. The Spirit is removed from them. Remember Jesus talked about a day when the unclean spirit would depart from the body and go out and find seven more spirits more wicked than himself and would return. Well, when the Lord's ministry began, seven spirits had come upon Israel in the wickedness of of those people came to the forefront. Jesus, on the other hand, is filled with the Spirit. Anointed by God the Father when the Spirit descends upon Him at His baptism. David's first ministry, like Jesus' first real ministry, was that of going to confront the enemy. The enemy of the Israelites was Goliath. The enemy of the people of God that Jesus is in defense of is the devil. After Jesus was baptized, anointed with the Spirit, what was He doing? He went into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil 40 days. So David, first you could say confrontation was that with Goliath. After the anointing and then Jesus' first confrontation after His anointing was with Goliath. Now there's something that happens in between these and that's how the 13th chapter ends, excuse me, the 16th chapter ends with David, the sweet psalmist of Israel who's playing the harp before Saul Interestingly, the spirit had departed from Saul, and yet David is called to minister to him with music, and to bring what to him? It says he was refreshed, and the evil spirit was subdued. I wonder, what would I, what can we get out of that? If this type, of, not only of the Lord, but an example and a type for us, what can we get out of David being a... Uh, A a psalm singer or or a musician, I should say. A harpist that's going to play on his instrument to us all. Let me give you what I think could be a practical interpretation of this sort of thing. Sometimes, I think all of us want to see people saved, don't we? I mean, ultimately, that's what we want. We want people's good. And what greater good could a person have than to have Christ dwelling in them? gift of God which is eternal life through Jesus Christ name written in the Lamb's book of life having their sins forgiven having peace with God through the blood of the cross and be able to live a life free from the bondage of sin we all would want that for our neighbors that's really truly loving your neighbor as yourself so in one way we all should be evangelistic we should all have that desire for others to come to faith in Christ but being practical, we know that that doesn't always lend itself that way. Sometimes in your, in your, uh, your work uh, place, in school, in your neighborhood, in your travels, in the marketplace, wherever it may be, oftentimes opportunity doesn't allow itself to be able to present the gospel to a person. We should always be looking for that opportunity but I think what we can do is we can, like David, the Spirit had departed from him. There was no expectation that there was going to be a reversion back to the Spirit re-entering into Saul and that he was going to be able to reign with the Spirit over the Israelites. But rather, David now his replacement. We, too, I say, can, like David, we can minister to the unsaved in a way that we can live a life like a sweet psalmist of Israel, that we can bring something to their lives that is a reflection of Christ in us that emanates to them without necessarily saying a word. And I'm not saying this because I'm trying to say, hey, here's a good excuse for not giving the gospel to people. But I think if we're really honest in in our in, uh, in, in analyzing of our lives, we know that we don't always have and they are not always the right opportunities for us to present the gospel. But we can carry with us, always, the, the hop, as it were. We can always have a sweet presentation to the lost. So that even though they may have the evil spirit, if you will, even though they may be wicked and, and unkind and ungenerous and on and on and on, we can still minister to them in a way that we can affect the unconverted. The Bible says a soft answer, for instance, turns away wrath. Who does that apply to? Anybody that you're dealing with in your life circumstances. But angry words stir up strife. So what kind of words do I want to use? What kind of a spirit do I want to have? I want to have a sweet psalmist like spirit in ministering to those that I cannot necessarily preach the gospel to who I know have shut the door for a gospel opportunity to be presented to them I can still nevertheless be a, a light beam for the Lord think of Jesus' ministry Himself Jesus didn't save everybody that He ministered to He fed the 5,000 plus he went about, the Bible says, doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. And I'm not saying this to be anti-evangelistic. I think you know me well enough that I'm not intending that to be the case. But I'm saying we need to have that balance. Even in some of Paul's travels, I've noticed, in Acts 28, when he goes to the Isle of Miletus, it, it says that... uh the, the natives there ex- treated them with extraordinary kindness. And he healed Publius's mother, and he healed many that came to him, but there's no mention of gospel presentation. Now, I'm not going to say that the gospel wasn't preached to these people, but I will say that the book of Acts does not mention it. There may be times too when we may not be able to present the gospel to people, but we can bring to them a sweet savor of Christ. And I think David highlights that. And as we go through his life, we'll see the character of David. The God built in character of David. How he ministered to people. How he handled situations. How he was before Saul, who became an enemy of him and was persecuting him. Far and wide. And yet David still had a spirit of humbleness and compassion and love. And what an example he is to us. Now, as I said, maybe this Philistine remembered something about the legacy of Samson. And he was calling out the best of their men to come and confront him. Just so we get an idea about the the, uh, character and the the size in, in this particular figure, let me read out of the New International, excuse me, the New Living Translation. Just so you get maybe a little better glimpse of it, it says he was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. He was coated, loaded with 200 pounds approximately of armor, which to any one of us, would be way overbearing. We might, a few might be able to transport that much weight, but to wear that weight, I've worn uh, leg weights and just doing exercises, running and sprinting and so on, and that becomes a problem after so many hours and whatever, wearing them around and trying to run with them on. Can you imagine having that much weight on you? But he was obviously a, a tremendously muscular uh Phenomenal soldier, uh, over nine feet tall. That sounds almost fictitious. Some people might dismiss that out of hand and say, see, the Bible is, is full of fallacies and fictitious stories. But it has been, a, it's a fact that archaeological findings in certain parts of, of Palestine have discovered skeletons between seven and nine feet tall. Nine feet tall. So it's not an impossibility. The tallest person I ever was around was a a basketball player who was seven feet, seven inches, and some beyond that, and a half or whatever. Seven, eight, and more. I remember standing next to him, without exaggerating, because I stood right behind him, and if you guys know what I'm talking about when I... When a player wears a jersey, and uh, he had his, his jersey on, his number was like 12 or whatever, I just went up to him, just so I could get an idea of how I compared to his height, I came up to the bottom of the numeral that was on his back. So I was just a little bit over his hip, and he was seven foot seven monster. It was it was it was the scariest thing I think I've ever seen when I saw him come into the gym. Now the gym door is about seven feet high and he had to duck his head just to get into the gymnasium. You can imagine what it's like to sit on a plane or something of like that sort. But nevertheless, nine feet tall we can't even imagine that. But he obviously was a unique individual and the Bible highlights him in a way that should draw our attention. Now, what was the strategy that, that Goliath had? Possibly one could have been having a one-to-one combat would have saved massive bloodshed. No one had to be involved. They didn't have to go at it with each other. The Philistines had many battles with, with Israel. They lost Most of them, some of them, they were victorious, but they knew from their history how many casualties could possibly occur. So this might have been a legitimate challenge. Hey, we can save a lot of lives. Just send me your best. You got a Samson among you, bring him out. Maybe the Philistines wondered whether or not they would even be able to beat the Israelites. So rather than taking that risk, they said, we're going to send you our best man. He's called a champion. A champion. He stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistine a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Whatever a scene this was, it drew tremendous fear in the hearts of the Israelites. They were daunted by this fearsome individual, and they had no one they thought in their ranks that would even come close to competing against him. And I'm not going to go into today because I'd like to spend a little more time next week on David's coming to the forefront. But it's is, is—it's it understandable, we have mentioned numerous times in other passages where Any non-Jew was classified as uncircumcised. For the Philistines to challenge the Israelites was like the Israelites saying, wait a minute, we are the champions of the world. And and that's not meant in a competitive way, but they are definitely known and realized that they are special God's chosen people. How then could the uncircumcised challenge those who were circumcised with the covenant and had a relationship covenantally with the true and the living God? Unfortunately, their reaction indicates that there was no dependence on God. And this is not uncommon for Saul. As I mentioned in the previous battle, those who were followers of Saul oftentimes took the, the virtues or the characteristics of the leader. In Saul's leadership characteristics were such that it caused the Israelites to tremble and to fear and to be in great distress. Oftentimes we lose sight of Christ in our lives, not realizing that he's really at the forefront of the battle. That he's one that I can count on. I think sometimes scripture is abused and misused. um, And it is in the uh, athletic world. I see it over and over again. I mean, in a way, I'm kind of glad and I'm impressed and I'm glad the word's getting out. But it's just a misunderstanding of the word in in its application. I remember when Mike Tyson was going to fight against... uh, What's Holyfield's first name? Yes. He was going to fight him, and he comes out of his locker room, right? And he has that big walk down to the stage, and he's got this beautiful silk boxing robe on, covering him. And what's on it? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see it on the sneakers of even some of the well-known basketball players, or you might see it under their eyelids, Philippians 4.13, or other such passages. Now, mind you, I'm glad that these things have gotten out. When you go to a football stadium, or if you're watching TV, you might see right behind the goalpost, a big yellow sign that just says, John 3.16. I had a customer one time, when I was a salesperson, and they knew that I knew the Bible and, and said to me, Hey, Gary, what's that John 3.16 about? Well, praise the Lord. That drew attention to that verse. What is so special about John 3.16? Of course, with that verse, what a wonderful door of opportunity to present the gospel. But using such verses of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and make that an application to you're performing in the game... And you're winning a battle in a boxing match against your opponent, I think, is a misuse of the Scriptures. It's really stretching And certainly, the the Bible does have primary interpretations and secondary applications, you could say as well. And I don't have a problem with a secondary. I think it's just being stretched too far when you try to use a Philippians four thirteen, and then you want to give God the glory for the way you. What about the what about the times that you lost and you stunk the house out with your performance, and here you got. Did the Lord let you down? Well, I think in a way you're sort of. Putting His name over there that I am, I am destined for success because I have Christ in me. He's working on my behalf and therefore I can do all things by Him who strengthens me. Well, that's not the kind of strength the Bible talk, is talking about in Philippians and elsewhere. The Bible says that we might be strengthened by His Spirit in the inner man. So we are fighting giants, brothers and sisters. There are things that cause us and could cause us to tremble. Like it says in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Wouldn't it have been nice if Israel said, Hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? You can bring the best Philistine that you have. You can bring two Goliaths. You can bring five Goliaths. You can bring 50 Goliaths. If God be for us. Who can be against us? Daniel's a perfect picture of that. How he leaned on the Lord in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When things weren't going right and it looked like they were going to be doomed, they basically said, the will of the Lord be done. If He chooses to set us free, fine. If we have to go through the fiery trial, so be it. God be magnified. Israel is trembling under the leadership of Saul. If you don't have the right leader in your life, you're going to be trembling. If Christ isn't exalted and upheld by us, He needs to be the Lord of everything in our lives. He needs to be the Lord of all things in our lives. It's so easy for us to hide in the caves. It's easy for us to retreat and say, this battle is too big for me. I can't handle it. But you know... I get great consolation. I wonder how I'm going to die someday. And I've been around lots of people that have died and have suffered from various kinds of sicknesses and diseases. And I think, I don't know how, how I could handle that. I bet that goes through your mind sometimes. But one verse that consoles me, and that's 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. There is no trial taken you that is not common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to go through that trial but will make a way for you to escape. A way to escape. Or in other words, to bear it. To get through it. How am I going to get through it? If God be for us, who can be against us? The Lord is on our side. We just oftentimes need to lay hold on the Lord so that the fear dissipates. Matter of fact, one of the objections objectives, I should say, of Christ coming into the world was to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And of all the fears of life, I think it's pretty obvious that the greatest of fears, and it tells us that in Job 18.14, that death is the king of terrors. That we have one who has conquered death by his death. Who could go into the graveyard of Lazarus and say, Lazarus, come forth. The one who could say, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's the one that we have as our leader. We're not under the Saul leadership. We're not being led by the one that doesn't have the spirit upon him. Like the Lord was anointed with the spirit of power, of holiness. He is our anointed leader in how critical it is for us to see ourselves, as we sing, sometimes sing with the children, I'm in the Lord's army. I'm in the Lord's army. I have fought in the infantry. I have fought in the cavalry. I'm in the Lord's army. We're members of the numbers of Jehovah's host. So we have the Lord who's leading us. So, when we find these times of difficulties, when our faith is stretched, when our faith is challenged, when the voice of the Goliath is shouting out, You serve me! You know, the the Israelites could have caved in. They they were processing this a, a little bit in the beginning here, until David, of course, steps up, which we'll get to next week. But I suppose they were thinking... What in the world are we going to do? Look at that huge monster. Who's going to battle him? We have nobody in our ranks that can handle him. And that's how we think sometimes. We don't have anybody in our ranks. I don't have it in myself. Amen, you don't. But there is someone in us, someone over us, someone who we can trust when we do go on the battlefield. And when we do hear the threatening voice. ...of the enemy... ...or of just some of the things that are common to mankind. Some of us are used to having good health... ...we have good family life... ...we have good jobs... ...we're well taken care of... ...we live in America... ...in some ways we're we're quite spoiled. And I oftentimes, when I read about the martyrs... ...modern day martyrs, let alone ancient martyrs... ...we have plenty of them around today talk about tribulation if that's not tribulation I don't know what is the church surely seems to be going through tribulation and in some parts of the world extremely severe when I see a person on Facebook when I used to be on Facebook and a professor from a seminary sent a picture of a brother in the Lord who was asked this, this was this was an actual camera footage of, of what he was asked to deny the Lord He refused to to, to deny the Lord and and accept, I think it was uh, about Muhammad or whatever as being the final and true prophet. He wouldn't accept it. They grabbed him by the back of his hair and they sawed his head right off. That image still remains with me, but I think, wow, what if that was me? How would I handle that kind of a situation? You know, that's where the Lord comes in. And, you know, we can't predict We don't know what the future is going to hold. I don't know how shaky or nervous I will be, but I hope that I can read a story like this and read portions of the Scriptures and find many passages that will give me that strength, that will give me that trust, that will give me that confidence so that I won't back down, that I won't be fearful. Because that's where the devil wants to fish. In the waters of fear, he will find something in you that will give him a sort of a victory. But when we know that we have in our ranks the Lord of Glory, the Prince of Life, the King of Kings, who says, I'll never leave you, nor forsake you. And when the battle gets hot and the numbers seem to be way above our numbers, and when it looks like the odds are against us, guess who we can tap into? That's Christ. When God saved you, The Lord connected Himself with you, if I can put it that way. He united you to Him and He to you. You are bonded together. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What a guarantee is. What assurance that is. What peace that should bring me. To know that I am united to Christ. And He that has done this to the least of these, my brethren, Jesus says. That's what He calls you and I. Hey, this is my family member. I remember in the neighborhood where I grew up with, my brother was five and a half years older than me. And he was one of the toughest guys in the neighborhood. And if one of the bigger boys picked on me and the older boys picked on me and my brother found out about it, guess what? That person was tapped on the shoulder. He was notified. Well, we've got the Lord on our side. And whatever neighborhoods we get into, whatever people, whatever things that may come into our life that may seem to threaten us. And we don't feel in ourselves. And this is where I say, our test is, is, is really, it, it's really put on the line. Faith is largely inactive when it is not tested. And if you go away from this sermon, not getting anything out of it, at least get this. Faith is largely inactive when it is not tested. The Israelites were going along, maybe fine, no difficulties. They had thought that they had won the battles and things were going to be clear sailing from now on in. But now all of a sudden, a giant appears on the scene. And you never know what a day will bring forth. You never know when that next trial is going to come your way. And handling it, I'm not saying in any way that it's simple, it's easy. it's It's not like you just sort of pull Jesus off the shelf and say, Okay, Lord, now it's time for you to act. It's a process. It's Christ working in you, giving you that spiritual empowerment and sense of His presence within you so that you are confident that you are able with Him. Not me. Not me. Like Paul says, It's not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's faith in action. And that's what's called for. And that's something that we can learn from in this example in the Old Testament. When the Philistines draw near and this monstrous character appears on the scene and these threatenings are shouted out against them. Saul is no one to look to. He's not a good example. He has failed them before. He's no one to turn to. But they're still the children of Israel. The children of God. They do have... A high priest. They do have access by way of the Urim and the Thummim to be able to, with the ephod, have contact with God. How much more the communion that we have with the Lord. God dwelling in you. I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, he's with us even when we're in tough situations. And when a giant appears out of nowhere... I can't go on that battlefield alone. And we'll talk more about David going on the battlefield and how he was able to go in the full strength of the Lord and in the name of the Lord and not in any way through some artificial means or some other avenue to try to confront this wicked giant. But he had God, ultimately, that he leaned on for the victory. So, in summation, I just want to say the giants that you have and I have in our lives, whether they're present right now or whether they've been in the past or whether they're going to be showing up in the future. Hopefully we've learned from the past, are learning in the present, and will be prepared for the future. That there is a way that we can confront this giant. We can conquer him. Matter of fact, the Bible describes us as we are more than conquerors. How? Through him. That loved us. That's how we conquer. It's through Him. We have no strength on our own. I feel like I'm the weakest person on the globe when it comes to certain things. But I always have to remind myself, it's not I. It's not me. It's Him that I've got to lean on. He is my strength. He is my tower of strength. He is my pillar. He is the rock of my salvation. He's the one that I can count on. How wonderful it would have been if they could say, Hey, Saul, you're our leader. Go before us. Take care of this monstrous character. Give us victory. And we're right there with you. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to send the Lord on the battlefield through us so that we can be able to fight the giant whose objective is to bring us into a valley, a valley of despair, which was between the two mountains. That's where the blood would have ended up being, right there in that valley. But praise the Lord, we have a hill that we can stand on that is the rock of our salvation and we can be more than conquerors through Him that loved us. May God help each of us to realize that in ourselves we can accomplish and do nothing. But with God on our side, we can. We don't need to fear and tremble we can count on the Lord who said he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's close in prayer. Blessed God, in-